0: Today is january fourteenth, twenty nineteen, and this is another National Creditors Bar Association Creditors Rights in Depth Podcast. Today's topic is Building an Ethically Strong Organization. The media is replete with examples of unethical corporate behavior that has caused many to question the values and ethics that underpin the decision making of corporate elites. In their recently published paper in MIT Sloan Management Review, Professor Katie Bailey and Associate Professor Amanda Chance question why these scandals continue despite the clear moral and financial imperatives for ethical action. And perhaps more importantly, they investigate what can be done to change matters. Drawing on in-depth research of five organizations, they found that although leadership matters in developing ethical culture, it's the little things that count. And indeed, what We call microethical dilemmas challenge employees at all levels of our organizations, including those of our member firms that are listening. So I'd like to have a um, welcome And joining us today are Katie Bailey, who's the Professor of Work and Employment at King's Business School, at King's College in London, and she's a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and sits on the editorial board of several highly ranked peer-reviewed journals. Her research focuses on human resource management And she has published a number of books and numerous articles in international journals, including the Sloan Management Review, the Harvard Business Review, and Academy of Management and Perspectives. Amanda Schantz is an associate professor at Trinity Business School at Trinity College at the University of Dublin. Her research interests include work engagement, human resource management, and ethics at work. She has published her work in several outlets and regularly speaks to managers and human resource departments about her work, She's also an associate editor of Human Relations, a Financial Times top 50 management journal. Amanda and Katie, welcome to both of you. Thank Thank you. you. Great. Thanks for joining us from across the pond. Uh, Those of us here in the States uh, are eager always to uh, get the uh, academic research perspective from people around the world, and uh, we're happy that you've taken some time to uh, share your insights and information with us here today. So welcome to uh, the National Creditors Bar Association community. Um, So let me jump right in, uh, and Katie, I think uh, I'll I'll direct this at you. What prompted the research on ethical organizations, and and what did this research entail beyond sort of that that teaser that I gave in my my introduction there?
1: Well, first of all, Mark, let me say how grateful I am that you've invited us along today to talk with you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, Our research was really very much prompted by the UK's Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, so this is a professional body for HR professionals here in the UK, which is the equivalent of the US Society for Human Resource Management. And I think the CIPD were very much concerned about growing unethical behaviour in organisations of all kinds worldwide, so not just corporate organisations, but also public sector organizations nonprofits. non-profits. We're seeing more and more reports of unethical practice of all kinds. We can think of many examples. We can think of Volkswagen. We can think of Wells Fargo. There are many instances like these that have made it onto the news all over the world. And I think um, the CIPV we were very concerned, well, why is this happening? What, what is going on? And can, in particular, can HR professionals and other managers and leaders do anything about this? And so they commissioned us to undertake this research, looking in depth at this problem and I think one of the things we particularly wanted to do was to go beyond just looking at senior executives. I think when we think of some of the um, examples we've seen in the media recently, uh, it's been very much the senior managers, the chief executive, for example, who will get fired. But we wanted to go below that and dig below the surface and ask What's actually going on inside these organisations? What is it that's enabling this kind of behaviour to emerge and to continue sometimes over many, many years and with disastrous results? So this was very much what we wanted to find out. And to address our research questions, we did a number of things. We first of all looked uh, in detail at the relevant academic uh, literature. We looked at evidence um, from the the press and the media. We also did a survey of employees in the UK and then we did some in-depth case studies in five different organisations and these came from different depart- different um, sectors. So for example we had a central government department, we had a nationwide retailer, we had a, a non-profit in the social services sector, uh, a police force and then finally a construction company and in these organizations we did a survey uh, which employees filled out and we also did interviews and focus groups so that we could try to find out from the employees perspective what was going on. So we asked questions like, is your, is your line manager ethical in the way they go about their work? Do they set a clear vision? Do you know as an employee what you should be doing in terms of ethics? And is there a clear and consistent message coming through or not? What are the barriers and what are the enablers? So these were the kinds of things we wanted to find out through
0: our research. And I think what I found, you know, very interesting leads to the, the second question when you talk about sort of daily ethical issues and the fact that it's stratified across, you know, all types and levels of employees within there. What are some of those daily ethical issues that that you found?
1: Well, one of the things that emerged very strongly from the interviews and the focus groups that we did was that employees face these, what we called micro-dilemmas on a daily basis as they're going about their work. So these are not necessarily big decisions that employees have to make, such as, you know, should we change suppliers or, you know, which area of business should we go into? They're small decisions that they have to make as they go about their daily work. And what we found was that these decisions, these small decisions that employees are making, pretty much as they're just going through the work of day send out and accumulate and create an ethically weak situation in organisations that don't match.
0: In well.
1: We found four things that really emerged in terms of these micro So The first one was a sense of disconnection between employees' personal ethics and those of the wider organisation. For example, many employees are saying to us things like, we're the same person at home as we are at work. When I'm at home, you know, things, certain things are very important to me, and those things don't change when I walk through the door at work. Yet, oftentimes, people were saying that, well, the, the values, the things that really matter to me, I can't, I can't put those into practice um, in my work. And where people felt that there was a real disconnect between what really mattered to them at a personal level and what they saw going on around them within their working environment, then they started to think, well, actually, I don't really feel very comfortable here. Um, And they're motivated to try and find ways to close the gap between their own ethical framework and that of the organisation. And when they can't do that, when they might, for example, uh, want to treat customers in a particular way, in an ethical way, but they're not enabled to do that, then they're either going to withdraw and quit the organisation and go and work somewhere else, or they're going to start thinking, well, it's not acceptable for me to, to act out my own personal ethics here, so I will just fit in. And so you get this sort of groupthink emerging, people starting to sort of act in the way of those around them. And so you get this culture emerging that starts to push the organisation away from where it perhaps should be going. The second micro-dilemma that we found was around conflicting stakeholder needs. Now, if you think about situations that you confront every day at work and decisions that you've got to make, you would think, well, actually, there's more than one stakeholder involved here. So you might have to think about your customers. You might have to think about the environment. You might have to think about employees. And each each decision that we all have to make will require a different balance in terms of how we go about uh, coming to a decision. So, for example, in the case of the non-profit, uh, there were cases where um, um, very wealthy clients were coming along and saying, well, if we give you a big donation, will you put Auntie Mary to the front of the queue in terms of the care that you provide for her? And so the organization was saying, well, I'm not really quite sure whether we're comfortable with that. The choice then really is, well, do you say, well, we will take the money because we need it, because we're a non-profit, and we will then, as a result, put our parents to the front of the queue, or do you say, well, actually, we don't really want the money because that that doesn't fit with our values? Now, the non-profit that we were working with took very much that lack of view and said, well, actually, we'll turn this donation down rather than take it and then use it in unfair ways and unethical ways. So that, that's one kind of di- dilemma that people really have to face on an almost daily basis as they go about their work. The third one is something that I think we can all relate to, which is not being certain whether it's acceptable to speak up if you see something unethical happening. Um, so one of the people who was working in the central government department, for example, Um, she saw uh, a manager making quite a sexist comment in a meeting. And she called the manager out and said, well, actually, I don't feel very comfortable with you saying that. And she immediately became aware that this wasn't the dumb thing around here. We don't make a fuss. We don't speak up. Um, and she was made to feel very bad about having having done that. And so having that, had that experience when something similar happens again, of course she and probably the others around her are going to think, well, actually it didn't go that well last time. So keeping quiet is the best way of dealing with it. And so again, this, these kinds of actions then start pushing the organisation further and further away from an ethical stance. And then the fourth one that we saw was very much about Balancing ethical decisions versus expediency. So in the case of the police force, which we looked at, one of the challenges they had was saying, well, there are all these different crimes going on. We've got very limited resources. Where do we focus? And so inevitably some types of crime would get downplayed uh, and the resources would be put into investigating other types instead. So for example, there would be crimes in the area of burglary and they would think, well, actually we don't have the resources to deal with this. And so they would say to people who'd suffered a burglary or a Mm -hmm. theft that they couldn't um they couldn't look into it for them. And of course this would then cause quite a bit of distress to people who've been the victim of crime, Mm -hmm. but also to the, uh, to the police officers themselves who wanted to help people. So these are the kind of four basic ethical micro-dilemmas that we found that people were dealing with on a daily basis, Mark. And what we found was that when organizations don't handle these kinds of situations well, then the whole organization can start shifting away from ethics, ethical system.
0: So then, to a certain extent, if I'm hearing you correctly, everybody has an opportunity to take some form of leadership in terms of shifting that organization, and if I recall correctly from the article, there are some core components to that ethical approach to leadership. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, absolutely. One of the things we really wanted to find out about was what is it that leaders are doing? Um, that really makes a difference in terms of building a strong ethical organization. And Amanda's going to talk in a minute about what an ethically strong organization looks like. But we found that actually what really makes a difference as well is having what we call distributed ethical leadership. So it's not enough just to have senior leaders acting ethically. It is important to have that ethical approach all the way through the organization. And I think one of the interesting things that we found out was we, we asked people to say, Does your manager have a clear vision for where they want the organization to go? And do they take into account the views of multiple stakeholders? And when we posed those questions and we plotted the answers, we discovered that only a third, so 33%, of our sample of um, employees said that their leaders were what we call broad visionaries. So, in other words, people who set a strong, compelling vision and demonstrated a real concern, a tangible, authentic concern for a whole range of stakeholders when they were making their decision.
0: So, Amanda, since we've been talking here about the, the ethical approach to leadership and everything, can you talk a little bit now about the characteristics that you found for an ethically strong organization and how you define those?
2: Sure, sure. Um, uh, so let me take a, a step back here and, and maybe talk about an ideal situation. Um, in an ideal world, leaders or managers, they, they want to be able to predict what each and every person in their organization would do when they're faced with an ethical dilemma. Um, this, th- in this way, they can, they can trust people because they can understand where people are coming from and how they're going to be behaving um, in situations of ambiguity. And a theory that we drew upon to help us understand how leaders can achieve this, it originates um, back in the 1960s in the field of psychology, and it's called situational strength theory, Was developed by a French philosopher, in fact, named Walter Michel. Um, and so I'll, I'll explain maybe a little bit about Michel's theory, which I, I hope you find interesting. Um, I, I certainly do. And then I'll explain how we used it, um, how we used some of those principles to develop this concept of ethical strength. So Michelle started with the premise that a personality, a person's personality, is predictive of their behavior, um, but not necessarily in every situation. So, for instance, extroversion—it's um, known as sort of a stable personality trait. Extroverts are talkative, they're energetic, they're the center of the party. Um, but extroverts—if you are one or if you know one—they don't always behave in an extroverted way, uh, and this is because certain situational factors. They cue or they signal to extroverts that those characteristically extroverted behaviors are are just not acceptable. So think of a a library or a museum or even a funeral. Um, These are situations in which most would agree that a typical extrovert might not behave in a stereotypical extroverted way. And you think, well, why why is this the case? Um, And Michelle's theory suggests that personality is less likely to be informative of future behavior when a person finds him or herself in what he called strong situations. And strong situations are powerful when they lead people to understand events in the same way, when they give clear information about the consequences of behaving in one way or another, They provide the appropriate incentives to behave in a particular way, and they instill the skills that are necessary for performing the behavior. So when Katie and I sat back and we looked at the data that we collected, we realized that in some cases, in some organizations, um, people behaved idiosyncratically when it came to ethics. So people in some organization, they drew on their own personal value system, um, their own motivations. Um, and sort of their own moral compass when it came to dealing with ethical situations or even defining a situation as ethical or not. Um, Whereas in other cases, there was a pretty, in other organizations, there was a really common view amongst the employees about what was the right thing to do in a given situation. So there was homogeneity or consistency in people's beliefs in one organization, and then there was um, a, a lack of consensus, really, in other organizations. So in this, this made us reflect on, on this particular theory about situational strengths. And we found that some of the same principles really applied um, to explain a strong situation with regards to personality to a strong situation when it comes to ethics. So organizations that had what we now call, what we coined an ethically strong organization, they send cues to employees so that people understand their context in the same way um so when um, when these types of organizations they give clear information about the consequences of behaving in one way or another, so are you going to get in trouble if you behave in an unethical way? Will you be praised if you behave in a, in another way? They also provide appropriate incentives to behave in an ethical way, and they also give um, uh, training, so they instill the skills necessary for perfor- for performing that. That type of behavior, so it was an interesting kind of theoretical journey for us um, to develop this concept of ethical strength, but I think it's a powerful construct to think about um, as we as we consider how to go about creating systems or creating organizations and teams um, where people have a shared common understanding about what is the right thing to do
0: excellent so for Let's take uh, our members, which are our law firms, obviously, um, mm. and obviously, uh, attorneys uh, already have a, a high degree of uh, ethical uh, responsibilities, uh, both to their clients, to the profession, you know, to the community uh, within there. So, if we're looking to to build, you know, whether again it's in a law firm or in a nonprofit or in a police department, uh, as you had done the research. What are some of the things, uh, that we can do to begin building an ethically either stronger climate or if you feel that you need to sort of start from scratch and you want to blow it up and, and start, you know, building a, a strong ethical climate, what are some of those things that an organization might begin doing, uh, in order to do that?
2: Um, well, it's, it's it's interesting that you bring up the the um, the you know whether this is something that is generalizable to all organizations. So, can any sort of organization create an ethically strong climate? And I absolutely think that that they can. I think that the concept does apply to a law firm as it does to um, to a um, a police force, etc. And it comes down to whether um, it it comes down to whether employees in the organization have a, this sort of a common understanding about, about, um, about what is the right thing to do or what is ethical. Um, so, I'll give you an example. Imagine this, your, your manager emphasizes to you the necessity of having a strong financial fourth quarter. And you heard rumors that a customer, a really important customer um, is, might be taking her business to a competitor. Um, and then this particular individual contacts you by telephone, invites you to attend a golf trip at her organization's retreat, but your company's policy on such matters states that you're to say no, but you really hardly ever discuss that with anyone. Um, And you know where cases like this have been overlooked in the past in your company. You can tell the customer sounds really impatient and wants an answer immediately, and accepting this invitation may be the best chance for salvaging this business relationship. So then the question is, what would you do well, whenever I pose this sort of vignette or question to um to executives, the answers tend to be quite emotionally charged, but they're also really divergent. So I was I was actually speaking to um to a group of individuals um in um in sort of a workshop retreat the other day, and they were from different organizations, and some of them said, well, in my company, you absolutely would go golfing. If you didn't go golfing, you'd lose the sale. And in fact, that's where our moral imperative lies. Whereas another person in the same room said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Um, you, you should never do that because our moral imperative or what it is that we believe in is more aligned with company rules and policies. So what's nice about the definition of, of situational strength or ethical strength is that it's pretty agnostic to what your morals are, um, in that it doesn't really matter if it's underpinned by rules or if it's underpinned by your organization's values. What it denotes is a sense of shared understanding. So it's, it, it's, we're not asking the question in terms of an ethical dilemma, what would you do? The question instead is, do people in your organization have the same answer to this particular ethical dilemma. So having a clear understanding of what your organization values is the right step. Um, And the the second is to create um, a consistent set of organizational practices that signal those values to employees. So providing appropriate incentives for behaving in a particular way. Um, So for instance, um, I I just heard this the other day, um, uh, happened in a friend of mine's organization, a person is fired for sexual harassment um, does the person get to quietly walk away and, and nothing is ever said, um, or does leadership make an announcement in a meeting to all employees explaining how the unethical act was handled? So how do you go about communicating um, the repercussions of behaving in particular ways to different people? And finally, we need to um, instill the appropriate skills for being ethical, so incorporating training programs and mentorship schemes and other forms of communication to ensure that people understand what the right thing to do means in your context um, i'm I'm sort of reflecting as i um, as i'm as i'm speaking here on on the ethical of what I know about law firms, of which i'll you know quite um, earnestly admit i don't know very much, but I do know that when junior lawyers Um, enter into firms, there's a huge amount of pressure on them to stay late, to sort of um, give up their life almost to the law firm. And um, and if an individual is unwilling to do that, then they're less likely to be offered a job within a law firm. And I wonder if this is um, an opportunity for people to reflect on this practice. And to reflect on 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 whether um, putting an enormous amount of pressure on people is considered ethical within their own law firm, and whether um, and whether there's a shared understanding amongst partners about what is acceptable, and whether whether human resources or the people management practices are supportive of that culture or maybe that um that aspirational culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so that's excellent. Excellent. So we're nearing up towards the uh, the end point in our time today, and if you had uh, a parting thought and something that you'd want the listeners today to definitely keep in mind that they take away from uh, the great research that, that you and Katie had conducted and uh, have been disseminating out there uh, around this important area of ethics, uh, what might that be?
2: I'd say it it comes down to what you had opened the the um the podcast with which is um it's the little things that count um and it, it, you know bit by bit an organization can can move towards um, sort of ethical ethical failure or, um, you know, something that, that's really going to harm the organization if it's not kept in check. And I think that when there is ethical failure, we tend to, organizations tend to fire the leader. But what happens time and time again is that a new leader comes in and the problems never disappear. Um, and that's because it's not, that's because ethics is it might be set set out by the leader, but what the leader does is it sets the tone for the entire organization. And once that level of of either ethics or ethical misconduct becomes embedded within a culture, it's very, very difficult to eradicate. And so you have this circular, um, almost reinforcing relationship between leaders, culture, and ethics that only a really strong leader can come about and can make um, significant change. And that's why the little things count because we need to pay attention to those before they get away from us.
0: Excellent, Amanda. I wanna thank you and Katie so much for taking time out of your busy days to uh, be able to share this with us. I know our listeners uh, will get a great deal out of it and it's excellent food for thought uh, for all organizations, not just the members here at the NCBA.
2: Great, thank you very much, Mark.
0: Thank you. You have a great day today.
2: You too. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.